0: Welcome to the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Neusley.
1: Hello, people. We're back today with double trouble. That is to say, Andreas Jenke and Jake Mann. It's going to be a different format, because for Andreas, this is his, uh, well, swan song, Ave ad vale, Hail Jake and Goodbye, Andreas. Andreas is leaving his role as contributor, principal contributor to the JPGN Journal Club, and Jake Mann is stepping into his shoes. We're going to be asking both of them to comment on two, possibly three, articles today. The first article has to do with predictors of insulin resistance in a pediatric population. We're going to ask Andreas, whose choice this JPGN article was, to comment on why it's useful and why it's important. And then we'll hear whether or not Jake agrees, or disagrees, and for what reasons. Away you go Andreas!
2: Yeah, well, thanks for the nice int- introduction. Um, I can clearly say I, I will miss you, but let's um, dive into the matter. So. I chose this paper because it's quite a large number of patients, 1,500 and um, they tackle, from my point of view, a very important problem, the obesity epidemic in children. So there, there has been a steady increase in the incidence and this has been even more the case um, or is even more the case after the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And we see more and more um, obese patients, but it's very difficult to decide do they go to insulin-resistant and metabolic syndrome, do they need more advanced care, or can they just um, remain in the care of the um, primary health care provider. So, in Germany we have um, more than 10% of severely obese children. At the moment I can't see them all. And this paper provides, from my point of view, um, a very easy, predictive model, which can be used by the primary health care providers to discriminate between just, I would say, normal obesity and more severe cases, which need more intensive care. That and, certainly
1: sounds promising. What are some of the discriminant points that are new in this model?
2: Yeah, well, it they, they use just regular parameters, which um, are assessed on a regular basis if you visit your physician. So from my point of view, most promising model, they use the age, duration of obesity, BMI, and then some measurements of waist and hip, and then also easy accessible clinical signs like TANA-H as a sign for assessment of puberty and the um, acatosis nigricans. So nothing,
1: you, nothing nothing, so complicated even as a glycosylated hemoglobin level.
2: No, no, you don't need, need that, obviously. Um, but mm-hmm. if, you, if you have these, so you have quite a good negative um, predictive value of, I think, something near 90%. And you can even further increase that if you take a fasting insulin, then you increase it um, above 95%. Wow. Positive and negative predictive value. So, this would be, from my point of view, an easy screening tool for the primary healthcare providers. They can say, okay, they do this screening and they can then either decide to take the fasting glucose, a insulin themselves or refer them to a larger center. This is important, at least in Germany in respect to also medical therapy, because the new GLP-1 analogers, um, you you can only give them to children which have already some kind of metabolic problems. So just normal obesity is not a reason to start a medication, but um, if you have insulin resistance or any kind of other metabolic issues like NASH or something like that, you can give the medication. So, so that this, means so.
1: that this is this is a real gateway. This opens a gateway to prescription of new and expensive agents.
2: Yes. So this is at least um, my assessment of the study. I mean, it's cross-sectional, of course, also including all data and retrospective. But um, it's very, very good start from my point of view. Jake, weigh in.
0: Well, I mean, sorry to be sort of uh come from the other side of things but i guess my take is that the model that they've created i would say is in practice going to be less straightforward to implement than perhaps they anticipate because i think that accurate tanner staging is not really routinely done perhaps for by most uh, family physicians and i um, mean you know, i guess it, unless you're really expecting it to happen then if you're consulting your GP for whatever reason, then they say, well, we need to do a you know an accurate assessment of pubertal stage, then that could seem as a slightly strange thing to do. The other point is that, is it really that much easier to do this than just to measure an ALT, triglycerides and um, NHB1C, for example, because the you know the discriminators are the ones that seem to be most discriminatory really seem to be triglycerides bmi and then obviously if you also included a a measure of fasting uh glucose or fasting insulin but that probably won't be done in primary practice i feel that whilst these camp these models can be generated they are often harder to implement than in practice than they come out as us on a paper. Well, all I can say is that
1: that's a matter of, uh, the proof of that pudding will be in the eating. That is to say that um, it'll either work out or it won't.
2: I think uh, the, the Tanner stage, it's a um, very typical national thing because in Germany, all childrens are seen by a pediatrician and Tanner stages are assessed on every visit. So it's part of the general screening. So this is maybe different in, in the UK, where the, the kids are not seen by a specialist, but, but by a general practitioner. So this might be the difference. But of course, I agree that things on paper, always seem to be easier than they prove to be in reality. But I paper, yeah, paper will put up
1: with anything. Yeah. That's, uh, okay. That's right. So, um, Jake, your turn up at bat. Tell us, about the, tell us about the article that you chose, which is we're going off the ranch here. We're moving to a non-JPGN article. But Jake thinks it's worthwhile to discuss the epidemic or non-epidemic of acute hepatitis of the last few years and whether or not it's related to adenovirus infection. Take it away, Jake.
0: Yeah, so this paper is a very large retrospective cohort study from the group in Toronto looking at severe acute hepatitis. Give, specific- us, give us its title, give us its title. Sorry, uh, Severe Acute Hepatitis of Unknown Etiology in a Large Cohort of Children, uh, paper in Hepatology Communications. and they broadly wanted to study this group of uh, severe acute hepatitis which is otherwise unexplained this is really off the back of a epidemic which was reported globally in the sort of spring of 2022 originally originally initiating out of the uk and then many other centers across the whole world reported an, an increase in cases and Whilst in the UK there was quite clear epidemiological data to suggest there was a true outbreak and in other small pockets perhaps, in other centres it was less clear. So the group in Toronto reviewed essentially all of their cases over five years where they'd had children presenting with an ALT uh, of greater than 500 and discussed their outcomes. I think there's sort of three points I think are interesting in this paper. The first really is that unlike the the data that has come out of the uk uh, and scotland they don't really show any evidence of, a, of an epidemic so i think this is likely to be reflective of me- much of the reporting around that time that once there was heightened awareness of this problem many centers were saying oh yeah we've seen lots of kids with very high alt perhaps it's the same uh in the uk it was They've demonstrated that these pa- these uh, cases were related to a virus called adenovirus-associated virus number two, which then needs to come along packaged alongside a co-infection of either adenovirus or HHV six or seven. But this was not seen in in this cohort from Toronto. So it's a good example of yes, we've seen these cases, but it's not part of the epidemic. I think the the other interesting point is just the the sheer volume of. Cases, so uh, we know that Toronto Sick Kids is a big, big unit, but I mean they were seeing at least fifty cases a year, fifty cases each six months of uh, severe acute hepatitis. What's it like in Birmingham? Well, I I think that what is interesting and possibly illustrates the difference is that this, a lot of these cases were not necessarily cared for by their hepatology team and had an alternative etiology underlying. Uh, but still, I get the feeling that this is even, you know, at least twice as many as that we see in Birmingham. You know, if they're having seven cases of severe, ex- severe acute unexplained hepatitis in six months, I don't think we get one one month, more like one every two months, probably.
1: Well, that's fascinating just because the
0: <coughs> NHS is set up to sluice
1: interesting cases, liver cases, to you folks or to Leeds or to King's College Hospital, depending on the part of the country. But if a place like yours, which is definitely a national referral centre, isn't seeing so many cases, something's different.
0: Yeah, and if you dig into the supplementary tables, it does show that uh, many of the cases had alternative etiologies, like an underlying malignancy or a otherwise common viral infection. I think it's interesting to reflect on the overall scale and therefore you know people in other smaller centers will not have such a volume of experience. And then kind of related to that I think the other important point to pull out is this uh sequelae of hepat- hepatitis associated aplastic anemia which I think it's always worthwhile to remember that as a uh, complication because many of these families kids come in in acute liver failure whether they have a transplant or not then they and they recover and then the parents think their child's going to die then they recover only to then find that their platelet count drops off and they're going to end up needing a bone marrow transplant so here they found uh you know relatively high proportion of their cases needed bone marrow transplantation which is slightly higher than that had been reported previously but we are still talking a handful uh, of cases overall, so a very rare complication, but significant for those who have it.
1: I've forgot whether adeno associated virus acute liver
0: failure is associated with aplastic anemia. Can you refresh me? Yeah, so that's a really important question. So far, we haven't seen it to be reported in such a significant way as the what was classically termed seronegative hepatitis. They're the ones. As sort of described in this cohort no etiology whatsoever perhaps you have a mildly raised igg and then they just continue to have a a fall in their platelet count but we haven't seen that and it hasn't been reported to be widespread which we're we're very thankful for because otherwise there would have been quite a large number of these
2: patients andreas chime in yeah well i mean i largely agree um with jake so in the sense that it's very important to not just believe that there is a global new epidemic if you just have one one center reporting on a new new clinical etiology I would say so it's it's important to have local data from all over the world but this also is from my point of view the limitation of this study so it just says that in Canada, in Toronto, there was no no increase in these um, in the incidence of um, acute liver failure. So if you look at the UK and European data, and you had quite a unique situation which had to come together to be responsible for the increase of these um, cases of acute liver failure. So adenovirus infection and then a co-infection with AAV2, six or seven. So maybe, this is just a guess, even if globalization has already, well, mixed um, all our viruses and, and bugs we have to deal with, this has been a local, regional issue. So where we had these um, these combination of viruses and in Toronto, there was not this specific combination available or ready to cause these um, cases of acute liver failure. So this is. I think it's important not to say, okay, one central has seen it, maybe we see it as well or we expect to see it as well, but we need we still need to assess and have in mind our local situation. Do you understand what I mean?
1: I get what you're talking about, but we don't know what the denominator is, do we, for adenovirus-associated virus infection in Canada, or HHV-6 or HHV-7 infection no, in Canada. No so uh, its I don't think that we can address that question with any specificity. Jake?
0: Well, I think this is where the nationalized systems for monitoring... Come into their own. So, for example, the UK has a system of basically randomly selecting groups of samples and testing them for a whole range of viruses. So they have a feel for the population prevalence of viruses throughout the year. And through the NHS, there's a linked-up system. So essentially, every case that comes to A and E gets logged one way or another, which made it more straightforward to demonstrate a true increase. In cases and as Andreas says therefore in other centers it's hard to know if this is a true increase or not and as you point out you don't know what the denominator is um, which makes it much harder.
1: Wow well I think we've seen a lot we've taken and squeezed that paper for its juice. Andreas you had another paper that you wanted us to talk about.
2: Yeah, well, um, it's about intrapaloric botulinum toxin injection for refractory nausea and vomiting in pediatric patients.
1: That must be so distressing for the parents to have a child that barfs every time he eats.
2: I agree and um, so these functional disorders are also an increasing problems in the younger kids and hmm. in the adolescents. And I think this paper from my point of view nicely reflects that we as physicians are at the moment a little bit helpless because they use a technique um, without any clear evidence. So there are no double-blind, randomized controlled trials to show that antropyloric botulinum toxin injection in these patients with the functional nausea is really beneficial.
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These people actually did use some sort of measurements. They measured antral pressures, they measured intrapyloric pressures. Have I got this
2: wrong? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. But in this unit, they use a technique without clear evidence. So which shows that there's a high pressure on, on us as physicians to do something against this function nausea because the patients are coming again and again and again. so And they use it and then what they now did is they retrospectively analyzed the data.
1: Aha, so they said we got to do something because the parents and the kids are on our backs and we'll put some botulinus toxin into the pylorus and then we'll see if they get better.
2: Absolutely. And they, and they, they demonstrate that in their cohort The patients like 75 percent of the patients improved but we do not know whether they would have improved on their own without anything so and if you look at many publications on functional diseases you see that over time there's a gradual improvement and then that everything you do has a quite strong placebo effect so every medication you give in these patients has some beneficial effect but if you if you match it to placebo, you usually have no, no real, um, real, um, superiority. Okay. So I think it's important that we, we discuss these possible procedures, but on the other hand, I would really like or advocate for larger double blind randomized controlled trials before we start treating the patients.
1: I think we may be dealing here with a little bit of best is the enemy of the good, because they did indeed identify intrapyloric increased pressures as uh, rather than antral laxity rather than antral dysfunction as contributory. You haven't mentioned that.
2: Yeah, I didn't mention that. They compare, I think, 15 to 6 patients. so. I don't know whether this is really a reliable comparison. So, um, mm-hmm. of course, they, they show that there is an increased um, um, antral pressure in patients that tend to respond to the treatment. But on the other hand, you could also say that gastric emptying studies did not discriminate between these two groups. So this is also something we do quite often gastric emptying studies to see whether there is some kind of gastric paresis. So I think it's important topic we need to address in some way, that we do things or there's a pressure on us by the parents to do something. But I think we should do it in a more scientific way. What do you think, Jake?
0: I think that it's a useful contribution to the literature. Um... But uh, the strength of the evidence, as you say, probably wouldn't make me change my practice at this time. And I think it just needs further work. It's useful to hear what other people are doing. But I think that, as you say, it needs to be taken forward to the next step.
1: So no increased use of botulinus toxin from the Birmingham pharmacy? Not from my perspective. All right, thank you. Folks, I'd love to keep on going. But Selma Ertl, our producer, is giving us the high sign that it is time to say goodbye. It's time to say hello, Jake. And it's time to say goodbye, Andreas. And um, Andreas, as they say in German, Danke für die Blumen. Thanks for the compliment at the beginning of this. And I'll miss you too.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, it was a pleasure, as I said. And it's even more a pleasure to have someone like Jake Mann following myself. And I'm absolutely convinced that he will elevate the podcast to another level. And I'm, I'm very eager to tune in the first January podcast when um, he's discussing papers with you alone. Jake, it's
1: time for you to contribute to this three-way admiration society.
0: Well, very excited to get going. And thanks for the invitation to join you on a regular basis. So, yeah, i looking forward to linking up. I've really enjoyed listening to your work over the last few months, Andreas and Alex, and it'll be good to be part of it.
1: All we can do now is just applaud our listeners for putting up with us. Listeners, thank you very much, and we look forward to presenting something to you next time at JPGN SBIGAN Journal Club.